Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The Most Notorious Podcast, a sensational Minnesota crime that shocked not only the state, but the entire country. The brutal 1963 murder of Carol Thompson. When the Nelsons opened the door at 9 o'clock, they saw this bloody woman in a bathrobe standing there, and she could barely speak. She came in and collapsed on their floor, and they, they didn't know who she was until they could wipe some of the blood away from her face. And then they realized, much to their shock, that she was uh, their neighbor, Carol Thompson. Welcome, everyone, to Most Notorious. I'm Eric Ribbonis. Thank you for joining me. It is with great pleasure that I introduce my guest today, longtime journalist William Swanson. He is the author of three books, and the one we are talking about today is called Dial M, The Murder of Carol Thompson. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Eric. Thank you. This is a murder that has become pretty legendary in Minnesota history. Would you tell us a bit about your background and what inspired you to tackle a subject like this, and a subject that is still fairly recent in the collective memory of Minnesotans? Well, I've always been interested in crime and the courts. Uh, Why, I don't know. I'm not the son of a police officer or a lawyer. Uh, my son is a lawyer, but that's after the fact. Uh, as a as a kid, I used to lie on the living room rug and read the uh, the Star and the Tribune, separate papers in those days. And I was always drawn to Dick Tracy, of course, in the comic strips, but uh, more important to the the local crime cases that were described in great detail and very vividly. Uh, much more than they are today, by the way, maybe just because of the volume we have now. But uh, I was fascinated by those stories, even as a as an elementary school kid, and have always followed those. And I was in high school when Carol Thompson was murdered, and that was just it was just a breathtakingly shocking event that I think just tipped this community on its head. This was a 
this was a, <laughs> I, mean, it was, I don't mean to laugh, but it, it, it's so, it's such a cliche. This was, this was leave it to beaver, uh, time. And this was a leave it to beaver family that was involved with Thompson's in a leave it to beaver, beaver, uh, neighborhood, Highland Park in St. Paul. A uh, couple of 30 something parents, four kids, six to uh, to 13 years old at the time. Uh, the husband was a lawyer. He wasn't quite as prominent as uh, the papers made him out to be, but he was an up-and-coming criminal attorney, a uh, very flamboyant guy who used to uh, sometimes just, uh, walk around town with a silver-handled cane and a bowler hat and uh, just and, and often with a very attractive woman on his arm, despite the fact that he had an attractive woman at home who was his wife. Carol, by contrast, was a very ordinary and much-loved housewife, as were most middle-class women at that time. They were housewives. She didn't have a career. But she stayed home, and she took care of the kids, and she was involved in the church. She was involved in local scouts and, and MCA, YWCA. Uh, she played bridge. She had a huge collection of, of friends, very close friends, people who loved her. And uh, she was the only child of a, of a St. Paul heating contractor named Otto Swoboda, Despite the fact they had money to send her to a private school, uh, she went to Monroe High School, uh, public high school in St. Paul at the time, and then attended McAllister College, where she met a young man from southern Minnesota named T. Eugene Thompson, T. for Tilmer. This was a fairy tale relationship. They had a nice house eventually in, in Highland Park, and as I say, these four kids. Of course, you know, these were not <laughs> beyond beyond St. Paul. Uh, not many people knew the Thompsons. But on March 6, 1963, Carol Thompson was brutally murdered in her home while T. Eugene Thompson was at work and the kids were at school. And the case just exploded. And there were fears throughout the Twin Cities and maybe even beyond of of a homicidal maniac who had broken into the Thompson house and brutally murdered, bludgeoned her and and stabbed her to death, and then escaped, escaped without anybody seeing him. And this became just this tremendous whodunit for a couple of months. Well, eventually, and we can get into the details of this, it's it's fairly complex, but basically there was this Brutal murder in March of 1963, and the entire community was talking about nothing else. And as I said, the newspapers uh, were all over this and and provided great detail, not all of it accurate, but (laughs) tremendous detail and photos. And it was just, it was like watching a movie, uh, a very frightening and unsettling movie. And... uh, A couple months later, uh, as it turned out, after some very uh, interesting and accidental law enforcement uh, events, experiences, uh, T. Eugene himself was arrested 
along with a couple of other guys, and he was uh, charged with first-degree murder. He was charged with arranging, planning, and bankrolling the murder of his wife in order to secure $1.1 million in life insurance he had taken out on her during the previous year and a half, and allegedly to free himself up to marry a former secretary of his who he was seeing on a fairly regular basis. So that's kind of, and then there's this tremendous trial in the, in the late fall of 1963 that, uh, that resulted in his, in his conviction, uh, and his sentencing to life in prison at Stillwater Prison. Who was first alerted to the fact that there was something wrong at the Thompson house? Well, this is interesting too. Uh, Carol Thompson, despite the fact that she was profoundly uh, hurt, she had a, a paring knife blade broken off in her throat. She had been battered beyond recognition by a man wielding a, a pistol. She managed to get out of the house and dressed only in a bathrobe, stagger to the next door neighbor whom she couldn't raise, to the neighbor after that whom she couldn't raise, they either weren't home or didn't hear her, and finally ended up at the corner house, three houses away. And uh, a doctor across the street happened to see her as she was making her bloody way down the block, and he ran across to this corner house, the Nelsons, and uh, uh, tried to tried to uh, tried to save her. They didn't know who it was. When the Nelsons opened the door at nine o'clock, they saw this bloody woman in a bathrobe standing there, and she could barely speak. She came in and collapsed on their floor, and they they didn't know who she was until they could wipe some of the blood away from her face, and then they realized, much to their shock, that she was uh, their neighbor, Carol Thompson. What was the evidence found at the scene of the crime? Well, there there wasn't there wasn't much. There were no fingerprints that were helpful. There was a length of of thick rubber hose uh, that was found in the bathroom, and uh, there was one bathroom in the house upstairs. There was a bathtub about five six inches filled with water, and there was some disarray. Uh, in in the master bedroom, then there was a great deal of blood down on the main floor by the front door, and there was a sh- couple of shell casings and a broken, uh, what appeared to be the handle of a of a broken of a pistol, a broken handle of a pistol, uh, lying in a pool of blood. There were also a few footprints in the snow. It had been snowing that morning. Leading from the front door down to the main sidewalk, uh, they were they were men's footprints, and there were some traces of blood in those footprints. There was some blood also on the kitchen or on the uh, bathroom sink, uh, where the killer had tried to clean himself up uh, before uh, leaving the house. So there was there was stuff, but there wasn't there wasn't the crucial fingerprints, and there were no eyewitnesses, uh, which is an interesting little sidebar to this, too. It's very conceivable that that 
the 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 literal killer, the hitman, a man named Dick W. C. Anderson, a Korean War vet with a Purple Heart. It's very uh, possible that he went down, walked down the street. This is broad daylight now. This is after nine o'clock in the morning. As Carol Thompson had just reached the Nilsons house, and it's entirely possible, and this blows my mind, that Dr. Pearson, who had run across the street to help after seeing poor Carol stagger to the Nelsons, literally crossed paths with her killer without, of course, knowing who it was. He had parked down the block and, and around the corner, and that's so he was he was he was going to his car at the time. But that's I mean it's it's one of several really uh, curious uh, questions that remain after after all these years. Why was she able to leave the house? Uh, why didn't he he finish her there? Well, he thought he had finished her. He he uh, he left her lying in this pool of blood with a knife in her throat, a knife blade in her throat, inside the front door. He went back upstairs. There was only one bathroom in the house uh, to clean up. He was full of blood, and he assumed she was dead down there. And as he's cleaning up, he hears the the the, the side door open and close, and he thinks, "Oh my God, she." So he runs downstairs, and by this time, she's already trying to raise the neighbors. And he walks out the front door, and, and, and as I say, he, he was probably right behind her without even knowing that. He didn't think that he was leaving her alive. That's, that's the answer to your question. Sure. So initially, no one suspects T. Eugene Thompson. He has an alibi. Yeah, he he he's got an alibi, and of course, as as everybody who reads true crime knows, uh, the husband is always the the the, per, the husband or the boyfriend is always the person that police look at first when there's a, when a woman is murdered. So he, you know, he he was he was they, they looked at him pretty closely, and it and the fact is, it didn't take them long to discover this insurance thing. He had bought you know, $1.1 million in insurance from about a half dozen different insurance companies because they each had their rules about how much they could sell. And so there was, you know, that that immediately raised some flags. Uh, of course, it's it, it's not against the law to buy insurance on your wife. So, you know, that, that could only go so far at the time. The other thing they heard about right away when they started asking about T. Eugene is that he was a he was a pretty pretty blatant philanderer. Uh, as I say, he was seen around town with with attractive young women on his arm, and he liked to spend money. He liked to show off. He liked to, he, he was he was what we called in those days a big shot, or at least he purported to be a big shot. And so, you know, again, that's it's not against the law to to uh, to be an adulterer. And uh, and so while the police had their suspicions, that, that's not the same as, as, as any sort of evidence that would allow them to, to make an arrest. He was out at the Lexington soon after, right? L- living it up. 
Yeah, the, 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 there's all kinds of interesting local sites here that people would recognize. The Lexington was a gathering place for many, many years uh, for lawyers and uh, and and people in the legal community and and you know just big shots used to go there. And he was he was seen uh, the night after the murder or two nights after the murder. I don't remember which uh, at the Lexington. Uh, uh, holding court or whatever he liked to do. My feeling, Eric, about that is that, you know, he was narcissistic uh, and and he always felt that he was the smartest man in the room. And we can talk about that when we talk about the trial. It's pretty obvious. But I think he felt, just as I said, it's not, you know, you, you might be suspicious, but you can't prove it. I wasn't there and nobody saw me there and nobody can connect me with that case. So you can think all you want. I don't care. You can call me a philanderer. You can call me. You can you can say, well, he he was buying all this insurance, but that doesn't prove a thing. I think he counted on that response right until the the guilty verdict uh, nine months later. Did he act like a grieving husband after the murder? How did he hold up to questioning by police? Yeah, he did. He did. He did act as a grieving uh, husband. Carol didn't die right away. Uh, she was taken from the Nelson's house in an ambulance to the old Anchor Hospital, um, and she died uh, three three hours later, despite the best efforts of the emergency room team there. He was there, and he was weeping, and uh, he was doing his best to answer questions from the police. He was trying to, he, he appeared to be a grief-stricken, cooperative victim's spouse. That was the role he played, and, and apparently he was, he was fairly convincing. It is quite possible that his real grief, the reason he was crying like that, was that this plot did not unfold the way he intended it to, to, to unfold. She was supposed to have drowned accidentally in the bathtub. The, the plot was for Anderson, actually it wasn't even Anderson. Anderson was a subcontractor to this murder. But the killer was supposed to enter the house the night before. He was supposed to come up in the morning after everybody had left hit her on the head with this length of rubber hose, stun her, knock her out, then take her into the bathroom and submerge her in this water that Eugene had left after his bath. So when the kids came home, and this is one of the really grisly parts of this, he obviously intended for one of his children, perhaps his young youngest, his six-year-old daughter, Amy, to come home from school, call for mommy, couldn't find her, goes upstairs and finds her floating dead in the bathtub. That was the plan. There wasn't supposed to be any blood. There wasn't supposed to be this this hideous bloodbath uh, that took place in his in uh, outside his living room. It was supposed to be neat. She was supposed to be an accidental drowning victim. And they think when he heard that, that oh, she had been beaten and stabbed to death, that that was probably the real cause of his shock and grief. 
you don't have to be too cynical to think that if you know much about this man. Right, right. So Thompson, as a criminal attorney, had some connections to the underworld. Oh, yes. Yes, he did indeed. Right. How did detectives put the pieces together? How did they find the men that were responsible for Carroll's murder? Well, the police got lucky. As I said, they didn't have much evidence, and they had no eyewitness accounts once Carroll was gone. But they had these pieces. They determined that these these are plastic handle pieces from a Luger, a Luger pistol. And they finally, after getting no response in the community, they found nobody who would who could help them on this. They went on television, uh, local television, with a mocked-up Luger with these with these plastic laminate handles on it to see if there was anybody who noticed it. Well, lo and behold, a couple days later, a salesman, a traveling salesman from Minneapolis comes forward and says, hey, I think that was that was from my gun. He said, I was burglarized. My apartment in Minneapolis was burglarized uh, while I was traveling a month ago. And among the stolen items was my Luger pistol. And I had made that hand grip. So they had they had that connection right away. They knew where the gun came from. And then by further coincidence, two two men in those days the newspapers called guys like this police characters. They were people kind of low level criminals. They were into check kiting and and car theft and the occasional burglary and so forth. These two guys were caught trying to hold up a bar in St. Paul. They were taken uh, to, to headquarters and questioned, and it turns out one of them confessed to breaking into this salesman's house or apartment uh, a few weeks earlier. And there is the connection to the, to the gun. They had taken that gun. Well, then the question, then, then they, the, the police leaned on these two guys and, and, and made it clear that they were suddenly suspects in the, the, the most notorious crime of the century as far as they were concerned. And they started talking. They were talking about a relationship with a St. Paul man named Norman Maestrian. His real name was Mastriano. Uh, it's from Duluth. He was a he was a crook. He was probably a murderer. He had uh, he had been a fairly successful boxer, amateur boxer, and he was a classmate at McAllister with T. Eugene Thompson and Carol Thompson. <laughs> Talk about small world. And it it turned out that that he had been a client in a murder case of T. Eugene Thompson. So all of a sudden, these these little connections are, are starting to snap into place. The two burglars testify that Maestrian had recruited them for a murder, for a hit of a housewife in St. Paul. Didn't give the name, but said that she was a, she was a woman who had to be who had to be murdered. They turned it down. 
they were burglars, they were thieves, they weren't they weren't murderers. And uh, it turned out that another man in this small group, Dick Anderson, was desperate enough where two or three thousand dollars, which was the offered payment, was enough to uh, to get him to agree to this. So there you had the the link between Thompson and Maestrian and Anderson, who were the three principals in this case. Thompson hired Maestrian, whom he knew, and I think he felt that he had Maestrian by the short hairs because he knew as his attorney what had really happened in that earlier murder case that uh, Maestrian had been accused of. Maestrian, as it turned out, and unbeknownst to Thompson, decided apparently he could not do the job himself. This was this was even beyond him murdering a, a, a woman and mother of four children. So he sublet it. He subcontracted the job. He additioned these four guys, each of whom turned him down except finally Dick Anderson uh, accepted the accepted the job. Uh, it, it's just it's just one of those bizarre bizarre stories that attracted me to the to the case among many others these two low life characters remind me and others of Steve Buscemi and his partner <laughs> from the movie Fargo yeah. yeah i know that always comes up there are some similarities there the coen brothers of course are are totally unhelpful when asked about that I doubt if, if you know, if, if the Cohen brothers grew up in St. Louis Park. They would have known about this case. Everybody knew about this case. And so, you know, if you're writing a crime story about killing your wife, uh, that Thompson uh, case is going to resonate to some degree. But I, I, I think it's a stretch to say that this was, that, that Fargo was based on, despite the similarities that Fargo was based on, on the Thompson case. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. 
Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. And now back to the show. So when does law enforcement realize that they have enough to make arrests? And how do these arrests go down? Well, Anderson is, uh, is, is arrested. Maestrian is arrested. Anderson comes, Maestrian denies everything, as did Thompson. Uh, both men go to their graves many, many years later, decades later, denying any involvement in this case entirely. So there's no information coming from those two. But Dick Anderson, who was an alcoholic and a drug user, and really a pretty pathetic case, uh, his marriage had broken up. As I say, he had been wounded in, in Korea. Uh, I talked to a, a guy whose father had served with, with Anderson in Korea, and he, he was not, um, he might have been a soldier. He was a Marine, actually. Uh, but he wasn't a killer, and he, he, he did this out of desperation, apparently, and was truly remorseful. He also was able to, to describe the case and the whole connection, as far as he was concerned, in very specific, direct terms. And he eventually became the, the key witness in, in the trial of T. Eugene Thompson. But he, he uh, was able to make those connections and tell the whole story. And uh, when, uh, when Anderson had finally emptied himself on the record to the police and, and the prosecutor, the police went up to Forest Lake, Minnesota, about an hour north of St. Paul, and arrested T. Eugene uh, at his uh, lake home. And uh, he did not resist. 
he did not cop to anything, but he did say, if I knew you wanted me, uh, I would have come in. Now, they had talked to him several times prior to this. As I say, he is a husband and, and, and a guy with kind of a, a checkered history. He was uh, he was of interest to the police, but he, he wasn't arrested until June the 20th. Uh, which happened to be his son, Jeff Thompson's 14th birthday. And Jeff recalls, we can talk about, Jeff is very important to this story, or certainly to my telling of this story. Jeff uh, and his sisters are, are there at the cabin, and they hear the police uh, knocking on the door at one in the morning, and uh, and uh, they hear uh, his dad uh, going off in handcuffs. or and. You know, he says, uh, happy birthday, Jeff. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it, it's such a heartbreaking story in so many, for so many reasons. Yeah, for sure. So the Ramsey County grand jury investigating all of this, does it come to an indictment pretty quickly? Yeah, yeah, he is, he is, he is indicted quickly and and uh, he he's let out on on bail. He he goes home, and uh, the kids, by the way, and this is a very interesting part of the story, an important part of my book, anyway. These four kids, especially the three older ones, who are really old enough to kind of understand what's happening to them here, they are baffled. I mean, not only are they heartbroken by the loss of their mother, but you know what are they talking about? My my father killed my mother. It was just inconceivable to these kids, and and there he is living with them. I mean, he he, he spent the summer of 1963 uh, at the house with the kids, and with a, they had a housekeeper that they brought in to help out that was paid for by uh, Carol's parents. And, uh, but, but there he is and he's coming and going and, and, uh, he's working out of his house and he's bringing back the occasional attractive woman. (laughs) This guy, this guy, uh, I don't know what kind of language we can use on your podcast, but I mean, this guy had, had, had balls of a, of a gorilla. I mean, he, he was, (laughs) he was shameless. And, uh, he, he was, he was absolutely shameless and, and, uh, you know, of course he denied everything and, and, uh, uh, he made it clear that, that, you know, to his kids that he was entirely innocent and that this would pass. And, and the poor kids, they were at first, they were, you know, a couple months after the murder, they were, they were minor, well, major celebrities actually in their neighborhood. Everybody wanted to have them over for birthday parties and have them over for dinner. And and uh, part of that was that people like to say, well, yeah, we had one of the Thompson kids for supper the other night, you know, because everybody was talking about the case. And they felt sorry for them, and they were really, really very nice to these kids, all four of them. As soon as T. Eugene was arrested and indicted. That changed, and these four kids became pariahs. As Margaret said, uh, it was as though we had murderers' children stamped on our foreheads, and they were they were shunned and they were they were avoided. Parents were afraid to have their kids play with the Thompson kids as though there was bad seed, that these kids were bad seed, and that it was almost a contagious thing, this murder. Uh, 
it was just awful. These kids, these kids, and I got to know them very well, especially Jeff, really suffered a great deal. And it's why I, I like to say that, you know, the victims of these crimes, uh, far more than just the, the, the poor person lying in the pool of blood on the floor, it, it extends broadly and, and, uh, and forever. It doesn't go away. I, I'm still very close to, I got very close to Jeff. And, you know, it's still a, it's still a, an issue with, with those kids. All these years later, they still have these bruises from the murder itself and from the treatment uh, by the community. Do they believe now that their father was guilty? Yes. Uh, as I, I describe in the book this, what they call a kitchen court that they convened in 1976. I'm sorry, 1986, after T. Eugene was was paroled. He was paroled after 19 years. He was convicted, sentenced, and paroled after 19 years. And when he came home, his daughters, now grown, of course, and mothers themselves in a couple of cases, they were they were very ambivalent about him. They weren't sure if he was guilty, despite the fact that the court had found him so. And they, you know, they had what was Sam Roberts of the New York Times in, in his obit, uh, in, in his obit of, of T. Eugene, uh, called an equivocal relationship with their father. He would come to their homes and he would have dinner with them occasionally, or he would take them out for dinner. And, and Jeff, meanwhile, the oldest and the leader of the pack, had been to law school and had become a prosecutor. And for the first time, he went through that extensive file, including the court documents. And it became very clear to him that D. Eugene had been lying about everything and that he was, there could be no other conclusion but that he had engineered Carol's murder. And so he convened this family trial at Margaret's house in South Minneapolis in January of 1986. And everybody was there except Amy, but Amy was living in Louisiana at the time and uh, and was, was connected by phone during these proceedings. They told T. Eugene, or Jeff told T. Eugene, we presume you to be guilty, but we're giving you this one opportunity to prove that you are not. You can bring anybody or anything and and use it to to change our minds if you can. So they convened and they had another such a bizarre setting. They they meet in Margaret's rec room and Margaret, good hostess, has coffee and crackers and cheese and <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean it. And and then they get to it and Jeff lays out the case against. To Eugene as his sisters and a brother-in-law listen. And it's an extensive prosecution. T. Eugene sits there and says nothing. And finally, when Jeff is done, T. Eugene pulls a single page document out of his briefcase and says, well, this, this exonerates me. It was a photocopy of a blood spatter test report that the police had put together in 1963. 
And Jeff and his brother-in-law took it in the other room and looked at it and read it again and looked at it carefully and decided that it proved nothing, that there was it was possible that there was somebody else's blood in addition to Dick Anderson's blood and Carol's blood uh, in the house. But it proved nothing, and it changed it, it, it changed nothing as far as as far as the kids were concerned. So they told that they they, they went back and they told uh, to Eugene that. And uh, Jeff said uh, basically, as far as we're concerned, uh, we're all done. We want nothing more to do with you. And the girls were still ambivalent about it as as they're all breaking up. As this court is breaking up at two or three in the morning now. T. Eugene turns to Margaret and says, uh, are we still on for lunch next week? And Margaret says, well, yeah, I guess so. And Jeff <laughs> says, no, you're not. You're absolutely not. And and uh, I interviewed all, I, I inv- interviewed the three uh, sisters, and, and they described their ambivalence and how they felt about their father. And, and uh, uh, you could tell that it was still a very difficult thing for them to to come to grips with that their father had had done such an awful thing jeff has just makes no bones about it uh, he's uh, he's a much uh, harder nosed guy i think and and uh, uh, there's no doubt in his mind that that uh, the old man did it i asked him uh, he and i spent a lot of time as i was researching this book and i asked him at one point i said do you think there's any chance that there will be a deathbed confession. Jeff said, no, no way. And there wasn't. And in fact, the, the, the legacy included T. Eugene's striking Jeff from the will. <laughs> Jeff was the only one of the four kids who didn't get anything, uh, in, uh, you know, from, from what remained of T. Eugene's estate after his death. I'm sure he was completely fine with that. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't. It was kind of the final insult, you know. And and uh, but Jeff is a is a complicated guy and a very intelligent guy, and he's had a long career. And he just retired as uh, chief judge of of one of the southern Minnesota districts uh, based in Winona. He's he's nobody's fool, uh, and yet he's he's still, as they say, he's still wearing the bruises of this of this case. So we skimmed over the trial itself. Yeah, yeah. Was he defended well? Yeah. He certainly had the money for it. Well, he, he hired a, a couple of local, very prominent local defense attorneys, Heim Siegel and William Fallon. Yeah, top top guys in, in, in the business at that time in St. Paul. Uh, they did their best. What they could point out, of course, is the obvious that there was no direct evidence uh, connecting uh, Thompson. There were no eyewitnesses. And uh, basically what it was is some circumstantial evidence that I can talk about uh, and the fact that some lowlifes were able to finger him. Uh, Dick Anderson, uh, on paper anyway, was not your ideal prosecution witness. As I say, he was a drunk and a, and a drug addict and a, a man of, you know, some emotional problems for sure. And, uh, but, you know, are you going to believe him versus this upstanding young attorney and father of four children? You know, you can decide. Well, the jury obviously believed him among other 
among other prosecution witnesses. The the court record, the you know, the verbatim record of Anderson's testimony is really striking and I, I include a lot of that in the book because he you know, it is it is a, a clear headed, very direct, no bullshit description of a bloody murder of a heinous crime. And it's impossible to read that, and obviously it was impossible to hear that at the time without believing Anderson. He he was so convincing without any histrionics or anything else. He just had that detail that was stunning. And there was nothing, you know, Thompson uh, testified himself, which is further proof of his egomania. I'm sure his attorneys... I talked to uh, William Fallon for the book. Siegel had had passed away by that time. Fallon couldn't confirm or deny this, but they had to have told him, for God's sake, don't get on the stand. That's the last thing you want to do. Well, Thompson, as I say, believed that he was the smartest man in the room always, and uh, he, he took the stamp, and he was just awful. He came across again. You you read the you read the verbatim uh, testimony. He came across as supercilious and condescending, and quite obviously lying in many cases. Uh, totally unbelievable and totally annoying. I mean, you would just dislike this guy if for no other reason than the way he spoke at his own trial. Uh, and when you contrast that with the testimony the honest, <laughs> candid, down-to-earth, uh, direct commentary uh, that Dick Anderson had provided, you realize the difference between uh, between these two men. So you write in your book that just a couple of weeks prior to the murder of Carol Thompson, a Catholic schoolgirl named Mary Louise Bell was stabbed multiple times, murdered near Minnehaha Falls. That crime was just as gruesome, if not more, but the Thompson case was far more sensational, a national case as well. Well, it was internationally reported, actually, yes. Right. Why do you think this one rose to the top and captured the consciousness of Minnesota? Good question. Uh, Keep in mind that this was 1963, and murders did not happen at the frequency or certainly were not reported at the frequency and in the in in the volume that they are today. Uh second, this was a particularly stunning case because of the victim, because of the neighborhood, because of the, the brutality, and because eventually the identity of the perpetrator of the of the brains behind this as it happened. Uh, it also, uh, you know, this was this was six months, well, more than that, uh, almost nine months before the assassination of John Kennedy. The the country had really not been shocked the way the way the Thompson case did, and certainly the way the, the Kennedy uh, case did. So that's all new, and the fact that these that the victim was such a uh, well liked woman and uh, and you know was such just kind of an ideal almost an iconic uh, Betty Crocker type housewife that was 
part of it. And the fact that it was in her own home and that uh, this was a home like, you know, it was the home that if you didn't live in a home like that, you probably aspired to one. It wasn't fancy, but it was certainly very comfortable, upper middle class in a very upper middle class, supposedly safe neighborhood. I think all of those things. And then this tremendous, overwhelming press coverage. Remember, there were four daily papers in the Twin Cities in those days. Minneapolis and St. Paul each had two papers. And the the coverage was just top of the fold every day for the better part of a year. And the, when the trial started, you know, they, they would devote entire pages inside the paper to to the trial and to the trial testimony. It really was extraordinary. If if this sort of thing interested you, you were in hog heaven because you you've never read so much about a trial uh, and in such detail. And the papers in those days, the media in those days was was uh, was highly sexist. The, the women were described, if they were young and attractive, uh, sometimes their measurements were included, certainly what they wore. Uh, it, it really became <laughs> just this, this, this freak show of, of coverage. You know, if you were interested in that sort of thing, and almost everybody was, uh, the interest in true crime today uh, bears witness to, to that kind of eternal appeal. This was unlike anything you had experienced before. What happened to Maestrian and Anderson? They were tried in separate trials six months after T. Eugene was. They were both convicted after long, long trials and uh, sentenced to life in prison. Dick Anderson, they all were sent to Stillwater uh, initially. And shortly after they arrived, Dick Anderson recanted and said, no, he, he alone was, was guilty of, of the murder of Carol Thompson. Uh, T. Eugene Thompson and Norman Maestrian had nothing to do with it. Well, it turns out that he was pulled out of there because he had obviously been threatened, and he recanted his recantation and uh, uh, apparently went to his grave. Uh, at a, he, was, he was transferred out of there, and he was sent to a federal prison where he spent uh, almost uh, 20 years himself uh, before being uh, before being paroled. He died before I had a chance to talk to him, but I I, I really regret that because I think he would have he would have probably been very open about the whole thing and certainly the the you know he he was just this kind of sad sack who got caught up in this thing and he's not blameless obviously he committed a brutal crime but I don't think it was anything that uh, that he ever imagined himself doing. Did you get a chance to talk to Maestrian at all? Maestrian was alive when I did the book, but he wouldn't talk to me. He, he, he would have nothing to do with this. And as I say, he went to his grave denying uh, any involvement in this in this crime. Did Anderson cut any kind of deal? No. He was arrested in Phoenix uh, in the spring of 1963. And when they when they went down to, to get him, when the local cops went down to get him, he said, well, what kind of deal can you make? And they said, there's no deal here. <laughs> you know, we've got you dead to rights. There's no deal. So just forget about that. So th- there was there was no further talk of that. And he just he just spilled his guts, basically, and, and told uh, everything he knew, which was which was central to the case. Yeah. 
Is there any kind of lasting impact from this murder? Well, I, as far as as far as the criminal justice system and all of that, there were some. Uh, Jeff Thompson, as I say, a lawyer, he 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 would encounter in court occasionally reference to the to the Thompson case. There would be some some legal rule that uh, that was affected and maybe changed by the by the Thompson case. But what I found is that it's just this kind of surreal expansion of of just influence in everyday life. I have spoken to many, many dozens of book clubs and readings and interviews, media interviews, and I've never been to a single gathering, and this is the honest truth, where somebody hasn't come up afterward, in some cases two or three people, with a personal connection to this case. It's just uncanny. Somebody was a guard at Stillwater when, when Thompson was there. I got a call from a retiree in Wisconsin who said that he had been the, the stenographer, the court reporter, when Dick Anderson provided his testimony. And he said he had just finished reading my book, sitting there at his cabin in Wisconsin. And he said as he's reading that testimony, which, of course, he had put down verbatim as part of his job in 1963, he said the hair stood up on the on, on his arms. It just had that kind of it had that kind of effect. Uh, people who, who who told me that their mother, several people told me this, their mother wouldn't let them go out and play for several weeks after the murder. There was this, you know, it was a whodunit for a while, and uh, and uh, there was concern about this, you know, this bloodthirsty killer out there, and uh, there were there were people who uh, insist that they started locking their doors at night uh, after the Thompson case. I heard that from several people. There was just all kinds of people who is, whose mothers had played bridge with Carol Thompson, people who had known T. Eugene Thompson downtown, uh, people who had been to school with the Thompson kids. Uh, it, it was just, it was just kind of amazing. I, 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 I was totally surprised by that kind of influence. Everybody remembered the case. Everybody had stories uh, about the case. In many cases, you know, quite wrong. There are all kinds of rumors uh, out and about, as there always is with this sort of thing. But the fact that nobody nobody I ever approached on this said, who? You know, <laughs> Thompson, who? I mean, <laughs> that has never happened to me on anything else that I've written over the years. He died in 2016, right? 2015. Yeah, he died on his 88th birthday. Did you try talking to him? Oh, many times. And I did talk to him. I talked to him informally several times. You know, he would be at some of these family gatherings that I was invited to, after, you know, years later when I was working on the book. I would be invited to, well, I was at Jeff and Diane's wedding, for instance, and I was I was at uh, 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 graduation parties for for the girls' kids and uh, you know career celebrations and so forth. And he would often be there with his second wife, by the way, uh, who died of natural causes. I always point out, but he would be there, and he would always he was a he was a world class schmoozer. He would know. He knew who I was, of course, and he didn't like me at first. But then, because I was just part of the furniture, he he decided that uh, that he could live with me. And so, 
we would talk about all kinds of things, baseball and health and whatnot, local events. Uh, but he would never talk to me about the case. Uh, he said, I would love to, he said, in his usual blustery way, but I'm afraid it would affect uh, my standing with the parole board. Uh, but yeah, I talked to him many times, and I, I've, I've seen him in action, and I, he, he's a very uh, charismatic guy in a, in a curious way. People were kind of drawn to him, certainly women, right to the end, right to the end. That must have been a little surreal, knowing that you were talking socially to a murderer. Well, totally surreal, and and uh, he's a close. He was a close talker too, <laughs> so he would be kind of right in your face when you're talking to him. And and uh, I don't know if you want to use this or not, but at one of these gatherings, my wife was with me, and and he started. To, he was always attracted to attractive attractive women. He started talking to her, and he's leaning into her, and I'm watching her bend over backwards <laughs> to, to, to get out of his face. You know, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't being obnoxious, really, but he was just he was just there. He was just this kind of overwhelming presence. Uh, he, he he was really something else. Interesting to look at in photographs too. He yep. had that '60s crew cut yep. glasses. Yep. Yeah, you know, he he's um a lot of people have said, "Gee, I can't understand why he he was so successful with the women. He doesn't, you know, he's not exactly Cary Grant." Um, but he was and and I think he was just, you know, he he could turn on the charm and and some people found that uh, irresistible. Yeah. He definitely had confidence. He was sure of himself. Oh, definitely confident. Yes. Yes. He also he he also he just had he was quirky in, in in the sense that as a younger man he believed that he was clairvoyant and uh, you know he just had he just had strange things like that he'd have these dreams that he felt meant something and uh, you know how much of that was just uh, was just bullshit or or how much of it he really believed uh, it's impossible to know oh yeah you you wrote in your book that he thought he could see the future yeah. Yeah, he did. He claimed to have foreseen the the accidental deaths of two of his siblings, uh, one in a car accident, I believe, and the other in a on a motorcycle. So, uh, but you know, a man like that is, uh, you know, he, he's totally unbelievable. You just you can't take anything for granted that he tells you. Yeah, has anyone ever approached you about making a movie about your book? Oh yes, that's a sad story. Uh, I I, uh, I signed a, signed an agreement uh, with a couple of young guys uh, from Los Angeles who had read the book and were very interested in this story. And one of them had actually created a, a, a screenplay, and uh, uh, he was he was one of the writers on the Ozark uh, Netflix series. And I mean, these were legitimate guys, very young. But they couldn't raise the money. I mean, this is this is the the roadblock for so many films. Uh, so uh, finally, I just I kind of pulled the plug on it because it was clear that they weren't going anywhere. And meantime, another person had approached me with a screenplay and and wanted to know if she could 
pitched this uh, this story, and and so she is supposedly pitching it now. But I have no great expectations for it. I think it'd be a hell of a movie, a hell of a film, yeah. And ideally, it would be a multi, you know, like a six or seven episode Netflix series because it would it would need that much time to uh, to really get into the details of this case. And is compelling as the murder itself is, the, the viciousness of the crime, the complete tragedy of it all, it, it's important to remember the victim, how amazing Carol Thompson was as a human being. Yeah. And, and the family aspect of the story as well, how her children coped with their grief for so many years. Yes, yeah. Well, and that was a big, that was a big part of what drew me to the story, too. Uh, I was interested in the crime and the details of the crime and, 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 you know, what I remembered of it and what I would learn about it. Uh, but I was also very determined as a journalist, and I've done this with other subjects too, is to get into the, the long-term, uh, ramifications of what happens. Uh, there's, there's always more than one victim to these cases and, and as I said before, they live with it forever, and, and it changes their lives, and it changes the lives of of their families, and and you know, virtually everybody in their little universe. So, I, and I don't think many crime books deal with that. I think most most true crime books, even very good ones, end with with the perp going to to prison or, or mounting the gallows steps or whatever. Uh, very few uh, deal with the aftermath, and I was very interested in doing that, uh, for better or for worse. So for people interested in your book, it's available in bookstores, online? Yeah, probably more easily online these days. You know, it's it's a 2006 book, so it's 14 years old. You'll still find it occasionally in bookstores uh, whenever I look, but uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, uh, you know, online would would probably be the, the easiest way to, to track it down. And it's available in paperback as well. So, Well, perfect. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Bill. Uh, my pleasure, Eric. Again, I have been speaking to William Swanson. He is the author of Dial M, The Murder of Carol Thompson. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, please head over to Minnesota's Most Notorious this week, where I interview Bill Swanson again about another one of his books. It's about the bizarre 1972 kidnapping of Virginia Piper. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Ribbonis, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, 
and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.